0: I'm Tim Gombas, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about whatever interests me, books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, Biblical Studies. You're welcome to email me, if you like, at faithimprovised at gmail.com. In this episode, I make some random observations. I recommend a powerful new book by Anthea Butler, called White Evangelical Racism, and I reflect for a bit about the terms exvangelical and deconstruction. So I'm standing here in my kitchen looking out on an absolutely beautiful sunny day. It's going to be warm today and um, spring has sprung and lots of good things are on the way. Another week or so, and the Masters uh, Golf Tournament will be held. This week is opening day for baseball. Thursday afternoon, the Cubs are going to be playing the Pirates uh, at 2 o'clock-ish Eastern Time. So I'll be here. I will be home. Phone will be turned off. Game will be on. Uh, Snacks and cold beverages will be by my side and I am really, really excited. It's been a long winter. I am interested in winter sports and they sort of carry me along, but what I really am most interested in is baseball and the golf majors, and especially the Masters. So much anticipation is built up every year. This last year, uh, it should go without saying at this point, has been absolutely bizarre. The Masters was played, the 2020 Masters was played in November, which was weird. And uh, this is sort of the start of things being set right. My favorite time of year, the start of baseball and the Masters. And of course, uh, this is Easter week as well. uh, So there's that. I don't want to be too sacrilegious, um, but there are certain things I'm really excited about, even as we take the time to celebrate the heart and the, uh, the heart of the faith and the high point of the Christian calendar. Uh, I just want to say that um, there's a summer semester coming up at Grand Rapids Theological Seminary, and my colleague, Jonathan Greer, and I will be team teaching, as we do every semester, biblical hermeneutics, which is a basic course, the basic course that everybody has to take at uh, GRTS, or I, I should say, the basic course that everybody gets to take. And I'm, I'm mentioning it uh, because our semester begins on May 13th, And you are welcome to take this course. There have been a a number of people who listen to this podcast who have taken up that invitation uh, last fall semester and the spring semester. And uh, no matter where you are in the world, you can take this class. And uh, Jonathan is an Old Testament scholar. And uh, I teach the New Testament course uh, aspects of the course. Jonathan teaches the Old Testament aspects of the course. We work through some basic... Uh, principles of interpretation. But what we love getting into are texts themselves. And we we go sort of genre by genre, um, Old Testament uh, legal literature, prophetic, poetic, etc. And then we get to New Testament narrative, after Jonathan covers Old Testament narrative, uh, the letters, apocalyptic. And we have an absolute blast. Jonathan and I talk pretty routinely about how that is the most important class that we teach at the seminary. And it's one that we get excited about teaching. So anyway, if you want to learn more about interpretation, um, how to handle scripture, how to deal with thorny problems, uh, jump in, check us out. You're welcome to uh, audit the course or you can take it for credit. Either way, join us for the journey. We always have a total blast. Uh, Just a quick thought. On something. Uh, Someone emailed me this last week and asked me um, why I, in talking about sort of Paul's vision for the church or the New Testament conception of the church, why I uh, don't use the language of missional in talking about uh, all of that. And um, just in general, and and this thought also is just kind of spurred from um, a previous discussion about uh, God's sovereignty and uh, sort of talking about some of the contours of that in previous episodes. And in conversation with a good friend, um, he sort of dropped the possibility of of a label. And um, I just, I really strongly resist any labels whatsoever. I may talk about this a little bit later in this episode. I just don't like labels for a a way of thinking, or I should say for a view or for my own identity. I don't think that they're helpful. And I think that they do, um, they cause more problems than they do good. Uh, I'd rather pursue sort of um, a way of thinking that matches the scriptural way of thinking or uh, a way of thinking that matches the scriptural logic or the biblical grammar. That's what I'm really after and what I'm really excited about. And I, I don't want to check out into a label and then sort of like massage that label and draw that out. I don't ever want to be in a place where I'm kind of defending a view. In my self-understanding of my own pursuits, I'm always changing and growing and coming to a a more accurate understanding of things. Uh, That's my pursuit. And I'm after the cultivation of language that will match how scripture speaks or or how um, whatever will sort of foster a fruitful way of thinking that is resonant and consonant with how uh, the scriptural logic unfolds. So I don't, and, and not only that, but I'm in a, my field is biblical studies. So I'm not um, a theologian. I'm not in systematic theology. I'm not um, a pastoral theologian. So I'm not you know, I'm generally resistant to landing on a label or sort of advancing a view. I don't want to advance a view. Um, I want to be open to any and all views or any and all input from others that will foster my own fresh thinking uh, because that's what I think is the most problematic you know, with my own field and just in thinking as a Christian in general is that there's just a paucity of fresh thinking. And that's what I want to find. I want to think afresh and think anew, Um, sort of having as orienting points, uh, the gospel dynamic of liberation. So like whatever way of thinking that is going to foster um, liberation and freedom when it comes to relationships or uh, how to sort of face life, that's what that's what I'm looking for my my anchor points are liberation what liberates hearts and minds and relationships and community dynamics and uh, the kind of liberation that Mary celebrates uh, at the beginning of Luke uh, when she talks about um, you know the low being lifted up and uh, the captive being set free like that's what it's all about and my pursuit is finding language that can match that so I don't I find a lot of, um, you know, some of the literature that I've read from missional thinkers and the stuff that I've heard them talk about sounds great. I have nothing against it, uh, but I I just generally resist coming up with any kind of a label for for my own way of thinking or my own view. Because it seems like once you label something, now you've got to defend it or it becomes a view in the marketplace of views. And it's not that I would, I want to resist being pegged as something. That's not so much the case as I want to sort of stake out a place of freedom where I can I can always adjust and grow in my own thinking. So anyway, I don't want to label um, how I think about God's relation to the world with any kind of a you know a, a label that I have to defend, and I don't want to label how I think about the church's place in the world. With any kind of a label uh, that I have to then sort of, uh, yeah, that that I'm stuck with. I don't want to be stuck in my thinking. That's sort of my greatest fear, that I'll be in a place where I'm stuck and I can't grow. That's that's a bad place to be to my mind. Uh, I bought a few books in this past week that I'm really excited about reading. I'm not going to say anything about them because I haven't dug into them yet. Uh, but I bought a book by Igioma Aluo called Mediocre The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. I read her previous book, uh, So You Want to Talk About Race. And I just find her a very fresh thinker and writer. And I'm looking into uh, digging into what she has to say in this new book. One of the cool things about it is it's got just a killer cover. Yeah. And good binding. That's a big deal to me when it comes to books. I don't read ebooks ever. I like to hold uh, a book in my hand, and I love it when a book has a good binding, when it's got a sharp cover. I don't know. I don't know that that's maybe that's shallow, but there's a lot of thought that goes into the production of books, as I'm well aware. I have people close to me that are in the publishing industry. And it's cool when um, something is put together thoughtfully. So I'm looking forward to digging into that one. And I bought How to Be Less Stupid About Race by Crystal Fleming. That one also looks brilliant. These are some really interesting thinkers and uh, scholars. And um, I know that I've talked quite a a lot about race um, over the time that I've been doing this podcast Uh, because this is something that I want to be doing a lot of thinking about. Um, The more and more that I dig, the more and more I see that there is so much about American life and American history and culture and geography and social policy, social behavior. So much has to do with race and gender. And as a white male person in this world, in this country, uh, you know, I've been trained to not notice any of that uh, because so much of American life and my own inherited Christian culture has been oriented toward making me feel comfortable, making me feel like I belong. And I've come to sort of label that whole reality as normal. And my own work on the powers and authorities in Paul's theology and how they play a big role in that Um, has shown me that one of the power's chief aims in corrupting culture is to make social corruptions and uh, dynamics of oppression and all of that, is to make all of that appear normal. That's just the way it is. And I've known that in theory, but I'm coming to see that this is so absolutely true when it comes to matters of race. So I want to be learning as much um, about all of that as I possibly can. Because I'm learning a lot about myself and a lot about my own culture. So um, I am very sensitive to uh, statements on the part of white people um, when it comes to thinking about and talking about race, this sort of objection that arises from um, a sense of tiredness from talking so much about race, like everything's about race. And I have to say that the more that I learn about American culture and American history, and uh, socioeconomic and political realities, they're basically everything's about race. I and mean, there's just that's always a dimension. Heather McGee's book, The Sum of Us, reveals that. But so much of my reading and learning over the past number of years has uh, reinforced that to me. So I just find um, that, you know, I, I love learning and I love revelation, I love penetrating into the realities. Um, you know, the truth about the reality that we inhabit. And for me, uh, one undiscovered or under discovered area of the common life that we inhabit is race, uh, to say nothing of gender. So uh, that's why I am excited about learning as much as I possibly can. One of the other books that I bought that I have started to read, and I think I'm just going to absolutely love is a book by Adam Grant called "Think Again," and I heard about this book uh, from um, uh, Preet Bharara's podcast uh, where Adam was a guest, and it was an interesting conversation between Preet and Adam. And um, it it is just it looks fascinating. Uh, Grant is an organizational psychologist. Uh, oh, where does he teach? It's it's escaping me right now. Ah. Uh, The University of Pennsylvania. He teaches at the Wharton School, and uh, he's an organizational psychologist there. And this book is basically about how to have an open mind, which is, as I've just been saying, is something that I I want to be doing. And he says this: "Uh, we think too much like preachers defending our sacred beliefs, prosecutors proving the other side wrong, and politicians campaigning for approval, and we think too little. Like scientists searching for truth. So he's basically saying that, you know, rather than defending our opinions and stances, we should be more like scientists, like holding our opinions as if they were hypotheses that need to be tested, which to my mind does so much for um, orienting ourselves as people in conversation and people who are growing and learning and coming to a better understanding of things. Um, that makes us more open to other people, to the, to the ways that our opinions and our ways of thinking can be modified. And I love that. That's what I want to be pursuing. As I was saying, um, with regard to my own field, my academic discipline, biblical studies, that's a field of study that is all about interpretation. And to my mind, there is, well, this is just how it is. There's so much that is like settled opinion or consensus And so much of these uh, consensuses need to be constantly rethought, and so much of biblical interpretation needs to be constantly rethought. I mean, I'd been a student of Paul for quite some time, and I have come to sort of a number of reorientations with regard to how Paul's theology is constructed or structured or sort of how it flows. Um, the lines along which it runs, and uh, I feel like I want to be open to more reorientations. Um, there's too little of that, in my opinion, in Christian theology and in Christian practice. And uh, so, you know, some of the ways that our communities are structured or have become stultifying reveals to me that, yeah, we, fresh thinking is not um, a problem or a threat It is uh, a hopeful thing and it holds a lot of promise. I uh, was raised in an evangelical culture that had a uh, sort of a strong apologetics orientation, you know, a desire to defend the faith. Um, You got to stand for something or you fall for anything. You know, know what you believe, be able to defend what you believe. And I just think, why? You know, why be passionately committed to being wrong? there's no virtue in that whatsoever. And in my experience and in my opinion, there is so much in my Christian culture, um, there's so much badly held opinion out there. And uh, I think that it would be far better to be open to correction or open to modification and uh, in makes for great a great conversational posture toward others. Um, but that's also like a genuine posture, I think, that we ought to inhabit. Anyway, that's one that I aim to inhabit. And Adam Grant uh, talks about the importance of learning to rethink and also uh, learning to unlearn unproductive and unfruitful ways of thinking. So Adam Grant's book, Think Again, uh, really well written, obviously a good writer, good communicator. And um, I've only just begun it. I'm sure I'll. Have some things to say about it down the road, but so far I'm digging it. I want to tell you about a book. It's called White Evangelical Racism The Politics of Morality in America, and it's by Anthea Butler, published by the University of North Carolina Press just came out about a week ago. Butler is an associate professor of religion at the University of Pennsylvania, and she earned her PhD in religion from Vanderbilt. She also has an MA from Fuller Theological Seminary, and she was part of uh, the church on the way in Van Nuys, California, an evangelical megachurch in the San Fernando Valley, which is a block away from where I used to live back in the mid to late nineties, same time she was there, which is kind of interesting. Uh, but that's just to say that she knows evangelical culture from the inside, from firsthand experience. This is a brief book that powerfully and compellingly recounts the history of white evangelical Christianity in America and how racism is woven into its fabric. As she says in the introduction, racism is a feature, not a bug. White evangelical Christians were slave owners and interpreted the Bible in order to justify enslaving fellow humans, African people taken from their land and brought to this continent in the interests of money and power. She recounts the political movements of the last century and how white conservative Christians have routinely exercised political power in the interest of maintaining the social system of white supremacy and have demonstrated little interest in attending to the social concerns of black people and black fellow Christians. The moral vision of white evangelicals aligns with the interests of the powerful, and they are drawn to figures who will give them access to power despite violating the morality that evangelicals profess. I want to read a few paragraphs from her breathtakingly powerful conclusion, which reads like a prophetic hurricane. It's subtitled, Whom Will You Serve? Evangelicals, you have a problem. That problem is racism. After taking this journey through the history of American evangelicalism, I know why evangelicals overwhelmingly support conservative Republicans and right-wing political positions, and why they supported, unwaveringly, Donald Trump and his administration. That is, I know the answer to the question obsessively pondered by the popular press, pundits, and even experts in the study of American religion. Why do people who identify as evangelicals vote over and over again for political figures who in speech and deed do not evince the christian qualities that evangelicalism espouses my answer is that evangelicalism is not simply is not a simply religious group at all rather it is a nationalistic political movement whose purpose is to support the hegemony of white christian men over and against the flourishing of others to put it more baldly Evangelicalism is an Americanized Christianity born in the context of white Christian slaveholders. It sanctified and justified segregation, violence, and racial proscription. Slavery and racism permeate evangelicalism. And as much as evangelicals like to protest that they are colorblind, their theologies, cultures, and beliefs are anything but. Evangelicals have burrowed their identities into the infrastructure of Republican politics since Billy Graham's relationship with Republican President Dwight D. Eisenhower. Evangelicalism is a religion that has benefited and continues to benefit from racism on both an individual level and a structural level, always under the guise of morality and patriotic nationalism. Racism and evangelicalism is not only about individual sin. It's about the corporate sins of a religious movement that continues to believe itself good And that good is predicated on whiteness and the proximity to power. If you are an evangelical reading this book, then I would ask you to look around and see what your witness has wrought. The nation is polarized. The candidates you back want to take us back to a mythical time, apparently the 1950s, that honestly did not exist. The bile and hatred of some of the leaders you emulate make it impossible for people to believe whatever witness you have left. While you are clinging to God and guns, mothers are clinging to pictures of children who have been shot dead in classrooms and streets and malls and cars. More people go hungry today than ever before. Inequality is mounting. Calls for law and order mean more black and brown bodies dead at the hands of the police. The nation's infrastructure is failing. Disdain for science has left America behind during a pandemic, while the rest of the world moves forward. The president you followed slavishly declared American carnage in his inaugural speech. Look around. You helped make this carnage we now experience. All of these things have occurred because evangelicals, through religious lobbying and interference, supported the political structures that that curtailed, limited, or struck down truly important issues. The polarization we are experiencing in government has stymied progress. That polarization has taken on a resemblance to ideological and theological battles. Your nationalistic evangelicalism is hurting others. Your racism is actively engaged in killing bodies and souls. This is her final paragraph. I hope these words find root in you. I hope they trouble you. I hope they sear your soul. I hope they make you change. There's only a little time left, but there is time. The time is now. If you're a white evangelical, read this book. Reread this book. Read and reread the conclusion. It tells the truth about our culture, and it's a truth we have to face if we want the truth to set us free. The book is White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America, and the author is Anthea Butler. Get it from an independent bookstore. (laughs) So, I wanted to share just a handful of thoughts about uh, some terms that I've heard recently. And uh, this may not be a terribly long episode uh, because I don't feel like I have a ton to say about this. Um, you know, and even saying that, you never know. Um, there are a number of times where I've thought this is just going to be a short 10, 15 minute meditation on something. Meditation sounds so much nicer than a rant. Hopefully I'm not ranting. Uh, If things I talk about come across as ranting, I don't really care. But often it's the case that I will scratch out an outline of some things that I just want to say to kind of guide my thinking. And my goodness, I'll look down and 45 minutes have gone by. So who knows? This this may be brief. And uh, I may have the opportunity to get out, take a nice walk and enjoy this just stunningly beautiful early spring day. But um, I've come across this term, exvangelical. It's, this is common. It's not like uh, I just discovered this recently. Um, I've seen discussions on Twitter uh, with the exvangelical as a hashtag. And you know, I've talked to a number of people who sort of self-identify this way. They call themselves this. And also I've heard some folks uh, talk about deconstructing. I've had conversations with a handful of friends, um, and they've used this kind of expression, and it's it's pretty common. Um, you know, sort of uh, growing past or growing out of or coming out of a way of thinking that they were trained in or raised with. Uh, and and these this identity of being ex-evangelical and this sort of process of deconstructing often seem to me to go hand in hand. And Uh, Someone asked me about this recently, and um, I just was—I hadn't really formed a lot of thoughts about it. Um, And I think my son used this uh, this title, uh, you know, several weeks ago, and and just kind of going back and forth about some stuff. And I don't know—I just this last week, I've I've sort of been chewing on that um, because I was—I don't know—sort of asked about it in, in in a moment when I wasn't really expecting to do much thinking about it. And when that happens to me, I take those kind of things on long walks with myself and um, just process how how would I think about this? What's the deal? Um, Why do I feel not so terribly excited about this? Or, um, yeah, that's my general feeling about the label and the task. That is the label, ex evangelical, and the task of deconstructing. They don't strike me positively. Um, Not only is one of them a label for something that someone is not uh, or that someone formerly was and the other one um, sort of a negative task of of pulling down. I don't mean negative in that sense. Um, they just don't strike me as hopeful. Like they don't necessarily point to a way forward that I would find promising. Even though I have to say I completely understand um the identity, I totally get it. I totally understand, um, you know, the, the experience that people have of having inhabited evangelical cultures and found them abusive or stultifying, um, or you know, whatever, oppressive or discouraging. I I have had that sort of experience in several different evangelical cultures, and I also understand the ta- I understand you know what it's all about when when people think about deconstructing. Um, but I guess I just want to think out loud for a minute um, about why I don't find those terribly uh, helpful, why I would not want to embrace those necessarily, uh, even though I resonate with and, and understand them, I think. First of all, um, I, I, as I was saying earlier, I tend to resist labels, uh, especially labels that are quite common and uh, labels for sort of a general kind of a movement. Now, that's not because, at least this is what I tell myself. That's not simply because of my personality type that wants to be unique, uh, like don't label me or something like that. Uh, there may be some of that in there, but I think this is kind of coming from a place of uh, health. I want to, I want to imagine. Um, but one of the main reasons I resist labels is it. They don't seem to allow for flexibility and growth. Uh, like if I am, if I consider myself by any kind of an identity marker, I feel that for myself, I'm kind of locked in. Like that's who I am, and uh, there will be some kind of behaviors, uh, or sort of like available options for behavior, or available options for certain decisions that I'll make, or people that I will or won't hang out with. It just seems to kind of slot me into a way of being in the world. And I don't want to be slotted in. I I want to keep myself in this place of freedom where um, I'm always open to rich and fruitful conversation with anybody and everybody. And I'm open and available for uh, cultivating friendships with any kind of person. And um, so I, I just, I, I don't like labels in that sense at all. Uh, for my own identity. so I wouldn't want to think about myself as an ex-evangelical, even though I completely get it. Um, i also I also don't want to think about myself as an evangelical um for the for the same reasons, I do embrace uh, the identity marker Christian, but simply Christian. and that's it. And I don't want to even think about. Like sort of like, what kind of Christian am I? I'm just an I'm just an Orthodox Christian person, and um, and that's not something that I wear on my sleeve. Like I feel like I have to tell other people that that's uh, who I am. But I'll I'll admit it. Um, I'd rather have other people, you know, other people look at my life and label it as such. Uh, But I don't. um, I mean, to be Christian is to confess being Christian, is to confess that uh, a person is a follower of Jesus. It's, it has less to do with sort of, um, you know, th- chest thumping or something like that. Uh, and there's plenty of that in the world as it is. Um, labels seem to sort of shape how you develop as well. And um, very often, I've seen uh, situations where people will adopt a label that indicates that they formerly were something, or perhaps they're anti-something. And when that happens, it just seems to sort of already um, prefigure how you're going to develop and grow. And especially, not to say that ex-evangelicals are anti-evangelical or anti-Christian or something like that, um, but when somebody or when a culture or an individual is anti-something, that... Sort of community or individual will oftentimes reproduce, but in just just a different form, the very problems from which they're trying to escape or the very uh, dysfunctions that they're trying to overcome. If you have ever been part of a church plant, you may have had this kind of an experience. Uh, We, I certainly did. Uh, We were part of a church plant some years ago, and uh, filled with just the most uh, wonderful people. Is one of our our best church experiences that we'd ever had. Uh, but a lot of the folks that were were part of that were coming out of church experiences that were that were frustrating and negative. And um, a big part of our self-understanding at that point, I think this is pretty common, was that, you know, we were going to do it differently. We were going to do it fresh. It was going to be completely different. We weren't going to fall prey to... Uh, the dynamics that had held us back before. And all of us had identified loads of bad practices and bad mindsets that we you know, didn't want to produce and didn't want to see uh, take root in our community. And uh, of course, that led us to a number of blind spots with regard to negative uh, developments, uh, negative social patterns that were developing. And because none of us can escape our pasts. And uh I just found, and we all found this, that we sort of inevitably and inadvertently reproduced a number of the dynamics that we were trying to escape. We just didn't we didn't see it. And we didn't see it developing because we told ourselves, surely that would never happen. We would never be like that. You know, we would never do that that our former church did or none of us would ever get involved and get wrapped up in you know, ego or power games—the way that the staff members did uh, at the place that we left—but um, those things did happen because we're humans and we're all the product of our conditioning. You don't—you don't escape that kind of stuff terribly easily. Um, so I think I think that labels are are just, in, in many ways, tremendously unhelpful. So rather than you know thinking in terms of being ex evangelical. I think that there are just better ways of constructing identity, and like I said, I think it's helpful to just—at th- least this is the way I think of myself—as simply Christian. And the way that I talk about evangelicalism um, is to, as as appropriately as I can, identify uh, the communities, the community and the culture in which I was raised. So I'll talk about uh, my inherited culture. Or um, the culture in which I was brought up, or you know the way of thinking in, in with which I was trained, um, because I want to I want to be honest about the culture that I inhabit. I mean, I do teach at an evangelical institution, and by and large, um, the culture that I inhabit is evangelical. Although it's not um, GRTS and the larger university that it's part of um, is not. And, and Grand Rapids is a big enough city that it's not like a stultifying. I've used that word three times, I believe, in this episode. It just seems to work. It's not an oppressive and confining culture, or sort of all-defining culture that that completely subsumes every area of people's lives that inhabit that culture. the The borders are fairly porous. It's a very, it's a you know, a life-giving and liberating community. I think that uh, Cornerstone University, by and large, seems pretty healthy, but certainly the seminary at which I teach is a a really healthy community. Part of that health is, um, you know, one crucial aspect of it is we've cultivated a good uh, practice of honesty about identifying our our warts and our shortcomings and our um, dysfunctional and destructive practices. And uh, so, I, I mean, I think that that's that's really huge. Anyway, just to say, um, I don't have any problem talking about my inherited culture or the the culture in which I participate, at least the institutional culture in which I participate. Um, but as far as my own self understanding, I simply want to think about myself as a Christian person, without any other labels, because that situates me to uh, be completely open to, to Christians of any sort. So uh, Roman Catholic Christians or Orthodox Christians um, or Charismatic and Pentecostal or Baptists or Presbyterians or Reformed or whoever or um, Wesleyan. These are all people with whom I confidently can fruitfully engage. I We don't have to talk about the things that divide us or we don't to my mind, there's nothing that divides me from other Christian people. Other Christian people are given to me as a gift, and I'm given as a gift to them. And the key in any and all of those relationships is thinking about how to relate to one another fruitfully, which is a joy and a delight. And I feel like there are countless ways in which other Christian people can can bless me and give me life. Um, And uh, I'm very open to ways in which I can be an agent of goodness in other people's lives. That's to me what it means to be Christian. Um, And so I've tried to simplify my identity and just constantly simplify it and pare it back and just take a razor to it. Uh, I don't, I mean, I exist in West Michigan, so this is, you know, uh, strongly influenced by you know a re- by reformed culture and there's a diversity of uh, reformed cultures uh in this part of the country and and uh within reformed circles in general uh and I can understand how people would identify as a reformed person if that's your denomination uh, but I don't understand uh people who proudly you know wear labels like I'm I'm a calvinist or I'm I'm a, a, a if you're an evangelical person, you know, I'm a, my theology is reformed or this is my theology or something like that. I just don't, these are the kinds of people I I very often don't feel terribly comfortable around. Um, that is to say people who carry their identity as something uh, that they feel they need to assert in some ways. I know loads of wonderful reformed people that that's just the denomination they inhabit. And they can they wear it that lightly that's fantastic uh, but for me i've i've tried to uh yeah just take a razor to my identity and pair it back and simplify it as much as possible so that i can be open to just the wide range of other christians that i know or uh, may get to know and that also opens me up to people who are not Christian, because in my understanding of being Christian, uh, it is the renewal of my humanity. Uh, it is God remaking me in into uh, the image of God, which is, he's remaking me as a true human. That means I'm busy posturing myself uh, with an openness to anybody and everybody, people who are agnostic or atheist. Um, with whom I often have a lot more in common, to be quite honest, than many Christian people. Um, but also uh, sets me in a, a place where I'm a good neighbor to people who are of other faith traditions. Uh, like if they are uh, Hindu, which in my neighborhood, there's a, a good number. This is a pretty diverse neighborhood for being um, a fairly well-to-do outlying neighborhood of Grand Rapids. If someone is Hindu or Muslim, um, I'm a neighbor because that's my calling. I don't I don't feel any kind of pressure to turn other people into being like me. I don't think I've talked about this person on this podcast, but I've made a friend. Um, my friend Steve was up uh, last week. We had a great time. Steve and Linda were here. We actually saw other humans for like the first time in the longest time uh, in the middle of this pandemic. It was a total blast, and we were talking about. This new friend that I've made, Saeed, who is a Muslim person. And um, man, just the coolest guy. We've, we've kind of struck up this friendship and we see each other. Uh, we, we live, uh, he lives one town over and he takes long walks towards where I live. And I take long walks towards where he lives. And we'll often pass and just have great conversation. He's Kurdish. And, um, we've had a number of conversations about American foreign policy and about his family and the struggles that they've had and about, uh, inevitably, food and our joy and delight in it. Uh, But being Christian puts me in a place where I can be open to um, developing this uh, friendship with Saeed because that's how I understand being Christian. Anyway, um, I think that that's a... A fruitful way of thinking about identity. If 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 I were a, the kind of person who uh, was thinking about um, my own development under the rubric ex evangelical, I think that I would rather think about my development under the larger rubric of just growing as a Christian. If I if I still embrace um, the Christian faith, if not, um, just just think about your development in terms of growing into her, your humanity. And I understand um, you know, telling our stories as um, stories of uh, you know, removal from formerly oppressive and uh, calcified community life. I completely get that. Um, but anyway, I think that there are available identity markers in uh, Christian scripture for thinking about ourselves that are more hopeful and promising. And if I were to uh, think about my own identity, it would, it would just be growth as a Christian person. And I don't even have a problem thinking, my, thinking about myself as uh, just a human growing into my humanity, because that's really the story of um, salvation in Scripture, God's recovery in Christ uh, of a humanity that He's transforming into true humanity. Uh, which is the glory of God. As Irenaeus said, uh, the glory of God is the human fully alive. Anyway, that's how I sort of think about identity. And by the way, um, just thinking historically and culturally, and this is one of the really, really interesting aspects of Kristen Dumais' book, Jesus and John Wayne, that I I need to get in contact with. her. apparently she's drawn this notion out in some other stuff that she's written, um, but she's done a lot of thinking about evangelicalism as a culture, just like Anthea Butler has done, um, thinking about its dynamics, that it's not properly thought of uh, sort of as a Christian tradition or a Christian set of convictions. And that's, I mean, I'm not a historian like Butler and Dumais are. I'm not, that's not my academic field, so I want to be cautious when I'm making judgments. Uh, but just because for the last 25 years, I've been trying to figure this culture out and trying to figure out like how, you know, from my view uh, as an academic within biblical studies uh, brought up within an evangelical setting, I've I've sort of long seen the great chasm that there is between the biblical portrayal of Christian community life and and my inherited tradition. So for over two decades, I've just been reading everything I get my hands on about the history of evangelicalism to figure out what is the deal with this culture? What are its roots? How did it develop? Where did it come from? And in my understanding, that's exactly the case, that it's this kind of, as Butler says, it's this kind of religious uh, tradition embedded within a political party. Um, But evangelical, in one sense, doesn't even really mean anything. um, And the reason I say that is um it it doesn't it doesn't designate any cohesive body of people like baptist means something or um you know the reformed church in america that is a body that you can join uh, if you join a church that is part of that denomination that makes sense but there is no evangelical church like there is the national association of, of evangelicals but it's just this kind of loose agglomeration of uh, churches and denominations. It's, it's more of like a style of being Christian. It's like a, yeah, you know, I think Dumais says something like this. It's a marketing niche. Like um, who is, who's the president right now of the National Association of Evangelicals? And what kind of power do they have over, over people who self-identify as evangelical? Like if you were to join evangelical, what do you join? If you have a membership in that what are you a member of it's not it doesn't designate anything you can't be sort of kicked out like several years ago when um rob bell published his book love wins um you know john piper saved, tweeted famously tweeted infamously tweeted you know farewell rob bell as if you know rob bell can no longer be considered an evangelical it's funny because that doesn't get at any kind of reality, even as it gets at a reality. Like, who is John Piper when it comes to evangelicals? He's not. There's no position from which you can sort of boot somebody out because you don't like what they say about something. Um, yeah, there, there are no sort of boundary lines. This is what sociologists and theologians and historians have tr- been trying to get at for the last... I mean, ever since George Marsden did his work, like, what is this thing even? If, if you can't quite define it, then it's not anything. The ironic thing um, about that whole Rob Bell, John Piper episode is that there sort of is a reality there. Um, and it, it's a reality whereby uh, these sort of um, prominent and popular and well-known figures have more social power in the social movement. Um, that we call evangelicalism it's it's the def- you know power and authority are not sort of earned by service or credentials they're earned by popularity sales marketing uh, and power and prestige and that's it it's this kind of soft power that's all based around market share or something like that I mean it's it's just really corrupt. But that's what I mean when I say that evangelical doesn't even like really mean anything and why it's an entirely unhelpful label in reality. Um and there's another sense, if there is anything in my opinion, if there's anything in my opinion, um that is helpful about about evangelical identity, it would sort of indicate um a posture that is um for, there was there was a time where I thought, yeah okay, evangelical as a label can can possibly be reclaimed. And what I imagine it would refer to is a way of being Orthodox Christian. That is, um, it, it sort of designates somebody who is an Orthodox Christian person um, who has or or an Orthodox Christian community that has as an individual or a communal posture this sort of cultivated nimbleness, Uh, while holding to Orthodox Christianity, having this sort of nimble posture of readiness to obey whatever scripture has to say. And um, an openness to change, an openness to growth, an openness to transformation institutionally and personally, uh, an openness to uh, negotiating power with whomever in the community, so that community life flourishes and so that um, a vision of the Christian faith. Um, sort of is enlivened and awakened and stirred up um, in a community and in a person's life. So, because evangelical to me does not indicate a theology. Like this has been debated for decades, ever since evangelical became a label, um, as if evangelical sort of denotes inerrancy um, and that's about it. Well, that's not any kind of a cohesive theological vision whatsoever. And as soon as that was sort of adopted, you know, back in the seventies, it became a battle—the battle for the Bible. Um, and as soon as that ground was kind of staked out, uh, if you remember the the ICBi series of books, this is going back. I'm not sure how many people know this evangelical history. Um, but as soon as inerrancy was sort of staked out, the people that were on that council immediately had to start. Writing books and having conferences and book chapters and subsequent books, and there's just this endless pouring out of resources on hermeneutics. Because as soon as you stake out inerrancy, now you have to sort of talk about well, how do we how do we actually go about reading scripture, which is the function of Christian traditions and denominations? They are agreed upon ways of reading scripture and thinking about being Christian in this world. And for evangelicals who all left the denominations, it was the question was, well, what are we what are we oriented around? And biblical inerrancy was sort of adopted, and it became pretty clear that that's not really anything to orient a movement or a community around. So, to my mind, evangelical does not properly denote a theology. Um, and if you think that it does, just talk to any two evangelical theologians, you'll get five opinions. Well, so who's this is the question? Who's the authority? Um, is it the person with the most money and the most sales and the you know the loudest preacher? Yeah. These are the dilemmas. So for my to my mind, evangelical does not indicate a theology. It indicates a posture. If there's any way, that that term can be reclaimed, but I just have no interest in reclaiming it. Um, that's I, I simply do not, and I think that anymore, it's you know, it's sort of ceased to indicate anything fruitful and productive. Um, which is why I don't use the term except to indicate the kind of culture that I inhabit, but I don't um, ever mention it in reference to myself, except to talk about the sort of culture that was my cultural, that is my cultural heritage, um, even though I resist having it shape my my current identity. I should probably also say that um, I don't wanna be anti-evangelical or anti-exvangelical whatsoever. I wanna be open uh, to uh, loving and receiving all the best from evangelical people. Um, any kind of label along that line would divide me or would sort of set me in opposition to some just great folks. I don't have anything. I don't have any bad feeling toward evangelical people. Um, I think that the larger cultural dynamics have to be um, sort of exposed and understood, so that evangelical communities can truly thrive. Um, but anyway, I have a lot of uh, of a tremendous amount of space in my life and time and openness to hearing from. Uh, ex-evangelicals, uh, people who have been uh, wounded um, by uh, sometimes destructive uh, community dynamics. Um, anyway, I'm just talking about the sort of labels and how they shape imaginations. That's that's really my bigger concern. I'm always thinking about language that we use about ourselves, and uh, to talk about reality, to talk about how we narrate our lives, the language that we use to narrate our lives and our experiences, to my mind, is so critical because we can we can inadvertently adopt language that sort of puts our personal narratives and community narratives into cul-de-sacs um, or sort of cuts off life-giving dynamics that those narratives could uh, sort of either manifest or experience. So I just think the language is what I'm really after. And uh, I guess I want to say, my goodness, this is longer than I thought. I thought this would be like 10 minutes, a 10-minute meditation, not a rant. Just pulling some thoughts together. About deconstructing, and I've had a couple of conversations with uh, some friends about this. Um, you know, a good friend who was talking about how she's uh, going through a period of deconstruction, had another friend uh, ask me about this and, you know, talking about the framing of it. um, What about deconstruction and when do we go about actually doing construction? And um, I just, again, that is language that I don't use because I don't find it terribly helpful. Um, And there's better language in, in the Bible uh, for sort of that, for a, a more hopeful frame for that kind of a process, even though, like I said, I completely get it. I completely get it. Having inherited ideologies and frames of reference and labels for people and patterns of thought that were um, destructive or that were not life-giving, um, that limited the horizons of my imagination, I can understand uh, thinking that I've got to do some deconstruction. And um, yeah, Steve and I were talking about this the other day. I, I think that there are some really fascinating frames for this. And uh, the one that he was mentioning was thinking about Nicodemus and Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus. This is something I think about all the time. Um, and, and I think about all the time about uh, the way that the Pharisees are depicted on the pages of the Gospels, it's so it's so sad that that you know being Pharisees is is a, is a sort of a bad word. Um, I think they're they take it on the chin in the Gospels uh, to a large extent because they are the culture um, that you know when Jesus showed up, they're the culture that should have got it. They're the group that should have got it. They are the they are the evangelicals in the first century. They, just like evangelicals in the early part of the 20th century, as Anthea Butler talks about, uh, left the mainline denominations to sort of do their own thing and organize their communities and institutions around the Bible and the study of the Bible. And there's a lot of um, sort of self-styled and self-taught Bible teachers out there um, in evangelical culture. That's the Pharisees in the first century. They were they were not part of the power structure um, oriented around the temple. Uh, the Pharisees are most often found in Galilee in outlying areas. They're not always found in Jerusalem, although they are. But they are street preachers. They are independent Bible students. They they oriented their lives around temple, or sorry, uh, around Torah and sort of the reproduction of temple purity in the daily practices of life. I mean that's evangelical ideology and practice. commitment to the bible and some you know a, a kind of a personal vision of purity and righteousness. Um where was I? Oh yeah, I think about them all the time because that's my heritage and that's my job. I teach the New Testament. I teach the bible for my, for a living. And, um, it's something that I love. Um, and what's so fascinating, uh, it's, it's also unfortunate that we have a bad view of the Pharisees because as Luke details in his account in Acts, um, thousands of Pharisees became obedient to the faith, um, after Pentecost, uh, loads of priests as well. That's part of the story that we don't often tell. Anyway, um, I think about Nicodemus and the Pharisees quite a bit, especially Nicodemus's conversation with Jesus because this teacher of Israel, this Bible scholar, Jesus tells him he has to be born again. And that's not that's not having to do with like a personal relationship with Jesus. That whole metaphor about You know, coming out of your mother's womb a second time, which is a bizarro image, um, is something that Jesus commends to Nicodemus. You, you Torah scholar who probably had every letter of Torah memorized in order, um, Jesus tells this individual, you've got to start over, you've got to um, completely begin again. And so, uh, for me, for a long time, that's sort of like um, become this personal image that I have adopted, and, and I don't, I don't think in terms of tearing it down and deconstructing. Uh, although it's something sort of like that, I guess I just I think about my daily experience as a student of Christian scripture and of of trying to understand the world and life uh, through the lens of Christian scripture. I think of that quite often, and I think of myself as somebody who basically every day starts all over again. All my assumptions, all the stuff that I've thought, I've come to see that so many of my inherited assumptions about the Bible and about being Christian are, are wrong. They might be barely wrong. They might be just a little bit off, but the implications that, that are run out end up doing more damage than good. And so I feel like I start every day with, um, this is why I just resonated with, with Adam Grant's book. I just love the thought of starting every day, thinking the thought, there's a ton of stuff I'm wrong about. And I want to just hold it all so loosely and be open to insights and correction from any quarter, from, um you know, just some random person that I'm talking with, a person at church, my neighbor, um, one of my fellow students at the seminary. This is one of the big reasons I talk about students at the seminary as my fellow students, because often classroom discussions spark something in me or teach me or shape my thinking, or there's a question that I can't quite answer. And I go back and I rethink things and, you know, I have to completely start over. This was a funny experience I had. Uh, maybe about ten years ago, I taught a summer course, and uh, there was a, a person that was in that class. And we we had a great time together, um, and then he took a subsequent course that I that I taught the next summer, and a pretty significant uh, part of my thinking over that year had changed, and and he could not believe it. He could not believe it. And uh, it really upset him. We had loads of conversations about it, and they were great. They're fine, um, but and, I, and I've had that experience uh, subsequently. And for me, I just I just see that as so completely unremarkable because that's for me quite common. I think that's a sign of growth. It's not like a an indication that um, I I don't hold things strongly or something like that. I really intentionally hold things pretty loosely, how much I understand Scripture. And it's because of a conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. You, Mr. Torah scholar who knows his Bible a thousand times better than I'll ever know my Bible, he had to absolutely start over from the beginning in his understanding. And uh, if that's the case for him, that is most certainly the case for me. So I don't think in terms of deconstruction necessarily, um, a better frame of reference for me is just beginning anew constantly, like always, always going back to first principles. This is why I love teaching the biblical hermeneutics class with Jonathan. It's like revisiting the basics over and over again every semester. It never gets old uh, for Jonathan or for me, not only do we learn from each other, but in just rehearsing basic realities about the the different um, sort of geographical areas of the wonderful national park that we call the Bible, revisiting those rich and fruitful areas anew is always revelatory. There's always just stuff we didn't look at properly uh, the last time or some kind of interesting nook that we didn't uh, look at as clearly or that we just weren't surprised by um, as much as we should have been. I just think about revisiting basic principles all the time and staying there, beginning anew constantly, not necessarily tearing down. Um, And as I'm beginning anew, I'm not necessarily constructing something. Um, And this is why I, I say that when I think about myself as anti anything, I inevitably sort of reproduce whatever it was that I'm trying to, like, you know, oppose. Because I don't think about, uh, I don't want to think about tearing down a structure of thought because I frankly don't want to rebuild a structure of thought. I want to just enter a process of constantly um, humbling myself intellectually, behaviorally, relationally, uh, so that I can receive not only the richness from other people, but the richness that's in the Christian, that's in the Christian Bible. Um, so yeah, I just beginning anew is one of those frames. Also, uh, Paul has a lot to say about uh, being transformed by the renewing of your mind. So there's this constant process um, of sort of shedding unfruitful ways of thinking and patterns of behaving and uh, cultivating fruitful patterns of thinking and behaving. Paul has a lot to say about this in Romans, uh, about putting on Christ. Uh, He talks about this in Colossians. He mentions this in Ephesians. This process of putting off, so so like always shedding intellectual clothing, you know, sort of behave, the clothing of of our patterns of behavior, always shedding that, always being transformed by the renewing of our minds. So I'm always adjusting my thinking. I'm always sort of um, trying to shape the logic along, you know, the sort of the grammar of my own thinking according to the grammar of scripture. And then I'm cultivating positively new intellectual habits and new patterns of behavior that are life-giving and fruitful. So rather than having a structure, deconstructing and sort of rebuilding some new structure, uh, I think more in terms of putting off, putting on and being transformed in my thinking, just this constant process of transformation. I don't, I don't want to have a superstructure in my mind at all like, you know, to sort of tear down some unfruitful structure, put up a new structure. I don't, at least that's how my mind works. I don't think in terms of the building blocks of some kind of structure, so much as um, trying to grapple with a pattern of thought. I think in terms of dry riverbeds, Karl Barth uses that image in his Romans commentary. This sort of um, dry riverbed that, you know, water runs down, um, Trying to sort of forge um, the dry riverbeds of the patterns and uh, pathways of my thinking, so they match scriptures' uh, patterns of thinking. So, I the images that I like are transformation, growth, um, and then also this word that I, for some reason, is like a bad word for many Christians: repentance. Like repentance as an overriding rubric. For, for one's entire existence as Christian, like a constant lifelong process of turning from and turning to, turning from patterns of thinking, patterns of behaving that are not life-giving and turning towards life, turning towards fruitfulness, tw- turning towards opening myself up to others and turning towards opening myself up uh, to the wonderful realities of this world and turning away from um, sort of patterns and habits that close me down to others and shut me off and close me off from others. Repentance is just the process of being Christian. And unfortunately, in the, in the sort of the, the structure, in the imagination that I inherited in being Christian, it's like there's this bad state of being not Christian, and then you get saved, now you're in And repentance is what bad people have to do if they've been bad as a Christian or if they're not a Christian. You do it once. That's really, really unfortunate because in Scripture, repentance is just this whole kind of lifelong process. And uh, it really is a community dynamic of always turning from, always turning towards. It's not a state. And I think that that's why deconstruction as sort of this rubric for uh, orienting one's thinking why it doesn't hold a lot of promise for me um, because it's not like I want to get rid of a former state and discover a better state or structure. I want to um, identify patterns and habits that are unfruitful and cultivate new patterns and habits uh, because being Christian is not static. It's not a state. It's a, it's a dynamism. It's dynamic. It's, it's, um, it's movement. It's growth. It's transformation. It's opening up. So um, back to Adam Grant, I I want to learn the process of rethinking, and um, rethinking how to be a good neighbor, how to be uh, a genuine human. Um, I don't want to consider being Christian as acquiring a body of knowledge or a set of answers. It's a way of being in the world. It's a way of um, it, it's cultivating a set of postures that involves invitation, hospitality, friendship, being inquisitive, rejoicing, lamenting, truth speaking, overcoming fear. And, and these are all sort of um, available to us and they they are life-giving ways of behaving um, that we are invited to try on. So I um, I'm not interested in being an evangelical or a not evangelical or an ex-evangelical. I understand where where folks are at in various places in their journey. I love hearing people's stories. Um, But as far as a rubric for identity, I think um, a really good one is Christian. Um, And maybe a better one is human. That's how I think about that. And I'm far less interested in dismantling evangelical culture. Uh, That's just not... I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in discerning the culture that I inhabit and its various uh, shapes. That's what I'm definitely interested in doing. But that's part of a positive orientation for me. It's a positive pursuit uh, of being truly human. That seems to me to be more fruitful than the negative task uh, of tearing down. Anyway, I... um, Boy, this went on for a while. I thought I just would have you know, five minutes of some thoughts to share, um, but there it is. I uh, should probably have this bit of self-knowledge at this point in my life that I'm far more uh, long-winded than I really maybe am ready to accept. Maybe that's part of knowing myself that uh, I've resisted to this point. At any rate, I've already said this before that um, I'm looking out on just the most absolutely gorgeous day and um, that's the case. Where I am, it's a beautiful day. Hope that that's the case for you too. Don't let it get away.